Well, it is a joy to welcome you to First Methodist Mansfield, those who are here at the well and those who are upstairs at the Well Cafe. My name is David, and I serve as a senior pastor here. And if this is your first time uh, in either of those venues, uh, we're delighted to have you as a guest today. If you have your Bible, I want to encourage you to turn to Luke chapter 15. If you did not bring your Bible today and you're here in the chapel, uh, there is a blue Bible uh, just in the seat in front of you. And then upstairs, we have some blue Bibles as well. Uh, the ushers will be happy to help you uh, locate those. You'll see the page number for Luke chapter 15. Uh, on the screen. I encourage you to find that uh, as we walk through that very important chapter of Scripture today. Uh, just a few things before um, we dive in, uh, kind of random things I want to I tell you about. Uh, first, I had a conversation with my son yesterday. My son's seven years old. Uh, we, were, we were driving home, and we started talking about, for some reason, he brought it up, where he wants to go to college. And I thought I'd just share with you his very sophisticated answers to this question. So the first place that he said, which I was surprised to hear, he said his number one choice was Baylor. So there you go. We have two Baylor fans here in the chapel. I don't know how many we have upstairs, but one person is excited about that. So that was his first choice. I said, okay, uh, what would be your second? Let's go ahead and do the top three here. And I'm hoping that he's going to get to my choice for him. And um, and he said, well, my second choice is Ohio State. <laughs> okay, that kind of came out of nowhere. And what's your third choice? Uh, Clemson. So evidently, he thinks the college football playoff is the way you pick your college. I, 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 don't, I don't know. But I, then I asked him, I said, well, son, what do you want to be when you grow up? And he said, well, I really want to be a garbage man. Okay, why do you want to be a garbage man? Because they pay you to do that, Dad. <laughs> I said, well, well, son, every job that you have, they, they pay you to do that job. It was kind of like a moment of silence, like, oh. I said, I get paid for my job. He said, you get paid for your job? <laughs> yes, that's how, you, how we eat, son. We, I get paid. For, he said, but all you do is preach. I said, do you think I do anything else but preach? He goes, yeah, you go to lots of boring meetings. And that was the end of the conversation. Now, that has absolutely nothing to do with the sermon today. But here's why I told you that story. Uh, I told you that story because in the midst of the busyness of Christmas, that was a moment that just reminded me of, well, there's some really neat things that are happening around you, David. You know, this conversation that you had with your son, that was, a, that was a neat moment to share with him and to hear from his heart where he is and what his dreams are and... Uh, it's December 13th. Does everybody know that? I know some of you are like, your heart's beating a little bit faster because the December is moving really quickly. And you're probably busy. You know, you're getting, you're doing end of year stuff. You're buying presents. You're doing all this stuff to get ready for Christmas. And I just want to say before we dive into this message, don't miss Christmas. Like in the midst of preparing for Christmas and the busyness of Christmas, don't miss Christmas. Don't miss the holy moments that are all around you. Don't miss those, those conversations with your, with your children. Don't miss the, that opportunity to bless someone. Uh, that you know, don't, don't miss the opportunity to be, be aware of someone who may be grieving this Christmas and, and you might offer a word of grace. Don't miss, don't miss the joy of the season. I know it goes by so quickly, but, but do, not, do not miss it. 
Uh, the other thing I want to do is I want to show you a picture. This is a picture that I got uh, in my email inbox uh, this week. I got actually a collection of pictures that I was, I was going through. And I want you to notice something in, in the middle of this picture. You see a gentleman, and he has a blue wristband uh, on, his, on his wrist. Uh, the, he has the same wristband that I have, and we've been passing these out for four or five years. I, I don't know. I don't know how many wristbands we have passed out and where they, they've gone all over this nation. Other churches have picked up on this. The, the wristband has a very simple phrase, God is big enough. Um, several months ago, I was getting, uh, getting on a plane and I, I was at the airport and I was at Dunkin' Donuts getting some coffee. And the lady who, who, uh, who checked me out there, she was wearing a God is big enough wristband. And I said, well, where did you get that wristband? And she said, well, I go to a, an Egyptian Christian church here in Dallas, a, a Coptic Christian church, if you don't know, and we've been passing this out. And I thought, well, that's, that's so cool that, that someone got that and they've been sharing this. Anyways, this picture is from India. Uh, and what you see here are some of the kids that we are going to be supporting in this next year with our uh, our gifts to Zoe ministry. So for many years, we've been working in Africa, particularly in Rwanda. Beginning in January, we're expanding beyond Rwanda. We're going to be working in Guatemala and in India. So in 2016, our church has taken a trip to Guatemala. In 2017, we're going to India. These are some of the kids that we're going to be supporting uh, who are orphaned and vulnerable children who we are seeking to empower to a life where they can sustain themselves. And there in this picture, I was just, again, scrolling through this this, this week, I thought, there's one of our wristbands. We're not even there yet, okay? We're not, we're not even taking the trip till 2017. We haven't given a dollar yet, and yet the heart of this church is already there. And that just blessed me this week, because I saw uh, that, that picture of, that's one of the Zoe staff members who has one of our wristbands. He's there uh, with, uh, with, these, uh, with these kids in India uh, that we are going to be supporting, and the heart of this church is already there. And if you're brand new and want to know, hey, what is, what is First Methodist all about? That picture gives you a pretty good, pretty good sense of what we're about uh, as we partner with, with Zoe to help orphaned and, and vulnerable children all around the world. And we, we proclaim this truth that God is big enough in any and, all, any and all situations. So that blessed me this week, and that's why I wanted to share it with you. Uh, we are in the third week of this series of Baby Changes Everything. And if you've missed the first two weeks, this is kind of what we've been talking about. We're talking about how Jesus changed the world. How the birth of Jesus changed everything about our world. And we've talked about that because we live in this new world, because we live after the time of Jesus' birth, there are things that we see in our world that we don't fully recognize originate in Jesus. They come from Jesus. And so we've simply been pausing as we lead up to the celebration of his birth to think about how our world has changed. What are the, the ideals and the, and the characteristics, the, the things that Jesus has brought into the world that have changed everything? And so I want to begin actually by reading to you one verse uh, from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 18. Here's what John says. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him the Father known. Now, if you were here the first week, we talked about that of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, only two of those Gospels tell the Christmas story. So if you're really excited on Christmas Eve, you got your whole family gathered around, you want to read the Christmas story, don't go to the Gospel of Mark, you'll be disappointed, okay? 
He begins the story later on in the life of Jesus. John does speak about the significance of Jesus' birth, but he doesn't narrate the details that you remember from your Christmas pageants as kids. He talks about the significance, the meaning of what has happened. This verse comes from the end of that section. As John is talking about what has happened, what is significant, what is monumental about the entry of Jesus into our world. He says, no one has ever seen God, but the Son, the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship to the Father, has made him known. That's how John describes the significance of Jesus' entry into the world. Jesus has come to make the Father known. So before we dive into Luke 15, I want to show you visually what I think John means by this statement. What does he mean when he says that Jesus has come to make the Father known? One of the questions that I am asked by people who are brand new to their faith or people who really wrap their heads around this idea that this book is important in their life, they start reading the book. And and because they've read other books... They do it in the normal way, which is to start at page one, right? Like any other, Have you ever had a book and, and you picked it up and someone recommended it to you and they said, you should really start at page 675? No, you start at page one. So they started at page one and they started reading and, and they got to about right here. And then they came and made an appointment with me, you know, because it's like... I'm in Leviticus and I need help. I don't know what's going on. They have learned a little bit about this man named Jesus. They've read from the later portions of this book. And they come to the beginning sections and they're a little bit confused. Like they get to Joshua where God says to the Israelites, go into the land and conquer it and slaughter everyone there. And then they're reminded of what Jesus said about turning the other cheek and walking the extra mile and loving your enemies. And it's like, Okay, who is this God? Like, how am I supposed to understand this? This is really confusing. Is this, the, is this the same God? Has anyone ever had this tension? Does anyone ever ask that question? If you haven't, it's because you haven't been paying attention, okay? It's there. It's there. So I want to show you visually again what I think is happening, what, what John is describing is happening in the life of Jesus, and what happens as you journey through the Bible, So when you begin at page one, okay, you begin with a picture of who God is. And it's a limited picture. It's not the full perspective. There There are things that you cannot fully see and you cannot fully appreciate when you begin at page one. There is this sense, as you look there, you kind of get the sense that there's something beautiful there. There's something magnificent there, but you only get a little bit of the shot. You haven't, you haven't seen yet the fullness of what is beyond your field of vision. But as you continue through the scriptures and as you continue to learn, you begin to see a, a broader perspective on what is out there, on, on, on who this God is, of the mystery that is God's heart and God's character. And as you continue journeying through the scriptures and, and studying the scriptures, that, that, that perspective that you have, your field of vision, continues to be enlarged. And as it does, you begin to see a more beautiful picture of who God is, the magnificence and glory of God. You, you get a picture of God's holiness, uh, of who God really is. And, and when Jesus comes along, Jesus removes the blinders. Remember what John said, no one has ever seen God, but Jesus, the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relation with the Father, has made him known. So Jesus reveals the fuller picture. He he gives you a picture 
that, that, that removes all the blinders. But when you're reading the Gospels, when you're reading Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, and when you follow along with the disciples, you recognize something, that it isn't until after the entire life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus. It isn't until after that that the full picture of who God is is revealed. And so what Jesus does in his life, his death, and his resurrection is he not only takes the blinders off and helps us to see the, the broader perspective, to, to see beyond our, our own field, our limited field of vision of who God is, God's heart and God's character. But Jesus also, in his death and his resurrection, he adds the color and he adds the texture that helps us understand the magnificence and beauty of God. And this is one of the ways that Jesus changed everything. Jesus took the blinders off. And he invited the world to see the God that he knew, the Father that he was in closest relationship with. He came to reveal the invisible God. Colossians 1, Paul says it this way, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He came to take the blinders off. No one has ever seen God, John says. But the Son, the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with him, has come to show you what the Father is all about. So when you look at Luke 15, here's what I want you to know going into this. We are looking at Jesus doing this work. Okay, Jesus is in the midst of taking the blinders off. He's in the midst of showing to the world who the Father really is. And this is how the scene begins. Uh, Luke 15, verses 1 through 2. Follow along with me. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So here's the scene. Jesus is gathered with a group of people who have come to hear him teach. And almost every time that Jesus was in a setting like this where he came to teach, he had these two categories of people. He had those who came to see him, to hear him, because they were interested in what he had to say. They thought that he might have something for them. There were people who were leaning in, curious about what Jesus was going to say. The tax collectors and sinners who had come hoping that Jesus was going to reveal something new to them. And then there's the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. These are the religious leaders. These are the people who everyone assumed were living a life closest to God. And these are the ones who are standing around with a rather judgmental spirit saying, I can't believe this guy welcomes sinners and he eats with them. And everywhere that Jesus went, these two groups of people followed him. There were those who were interested. There were those who were leaning in. There were those who were curious. What is, what is this man bringing? What is he talking about? What, what, what might this mean for my life? And there are those who are saying, what is this guy doing? <laughs> what is he talking about? He no, there are those who people would have assumed, and they certainly assumed were closest to God, and it is those people who ironically present themselves as the adversaries of God's Son. So here's the, here's the scene. There are those who are leaning in, and there are those who are there who are adversaries of Jesus. And in response to this moment, to the dynamic of the crowd that Jesus sees, he decides to tell three stories. Let's look at these three stories. Here's the first one. Then Jesus told them this parable, which is just a 
big Bible word for story, okay? So he told them a story. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Now, you not being shepherds, okay, you don't really know what this is like. But Jesus is going to tell you what this is like. So if you were a shepherd and you lost, a, lost one of your sheep, Jesus says, doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And you can kind of go along and say, well, yeah, I guess so. Jesus said it. That's, I guess that's what you do. If you're the shepherd, you go and find the lost sheep. And when he finds it, he, the shepherd, joyfully puts it, the sheep, on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and they say, and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. So here's the story. There's a shepherd. He's lost his sheep. Oh no, where's my sheep? He goes and gets the sheep. He brings it back. He's so excited. Let's throw a party. I found my sheep, okay? This is a pretty good neighbor, you know? Just wants to throw a party every time he finds a sheep. That's pretty cool. So that's the story. That's the first story that Jesus tells. Here's the second story. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me! I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, some of you are thinking this is a weird neighbor. And maybe they are. I mean, the person who finds something and then calls everybody, let's have a party. You know, that's probably a little bit weird. They lose one coin. Let's throw a party. But some of you here today, you, you are people who never lose anything. God bless you. I mean, really, God bless you. You never lose anything, and that's just great. And so you don't really understand this part of the story, okay? You, you don't really connect with the heart of this woman who has lost the coin. Because some of you are like me. And whether it's your keys or your phone or the sandwich you made for lunch or the remote, you lose things all the time, right? I mean, you just set them down. You don't know where it is, and you find yourself looking at, where are my keys? Where's my phone? Where's the sandwich I made? I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm a, I, where are my pants? I don't know. Where are my pants? You know, are, 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 do we have some of those people here? Some people who just lose things all the time. You know the frustration. Where are my keys? Doug's raising his hand. No one is surprised by that, Doug. <laughs> you lose things. And, and the frustration and when you, of losing it, when you find it, it's like, whoa, you know these people. There's great joy. I found my keys. I can drive again. I found my phone. Jesus tells two stories. And they're the same story. They're the same story. Someone loses something. Someone finds it. Let's have a party. It's a very simple story. He's told two of them. Why would he need to tell a third? Well, if you're a teacher, you know why you need to tell a third story, because they didn't get the first two stories. So here's the third story. There was a father who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. In other words, this story is heading the wrong direction for this young man. Verse 17, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. 
I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. And when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied. And your, bro- your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is now found. So here's the scene. There are those who have come to hear what Jesus might say to them. And there are others who, with a judgmental tone, are going, what in the world is Jesus doing? And in response, Jesus tells three stories. Three stories about things getting lost and things being found. One is a story about lost sheep. One is a story about a lost coin. And one is a story about two lost sons. One lost sheep, one lost coin, and two lost sons. Now, let me ask you a very basic question, okay? This is going to sound like a trick question, okay? You're going to want to pause and think about it and go, what does he mean? I don't know, I don't know. It's going to sound like a I promise this is not a trick question. It is a simple, basic question. Who is the father? This is actually not a rhetorical question. This is the interactive portion. Let me hear it from upstairs. Who is the father? The Father is God. Good job! You got it! You got the point of the story. God is the Father. That's that's the very simple question, right? How how could you miss it? That's what it's about. This isn't like one of Jesus' other stories where the disciples went, This is is a very straightforward, easy to understand. God is the Father in the story. That's what Jesus is talking about. It's simple. You get it. I get it. Guess who else got it? The audience that day. The tax collectors and sinners, they knew who Jesus was talking about. He's talking about God. He's saying the Father. He's saying that God is like the Father in this story. You know who else understood it? The Pharisees and the teachers of the law. But you know what their response was? He's talking about God? He thinks God is like the Father in this story? Why? Don't miss this. Don't miss this. Because Jesus Jesus was showing them a picture 
of who God is that they had never seen before. He was taking off the blinders. He was adding the color and the texture. He was revealing to them in all the fullness, the glory and majesty of God. He was showing to them the picture of God's holiness and God's grace. And they'd never seen it before. And some of them responded with rejoicing and some of them responded with judgment. They couldn't see it because they had never seen it before. This picture of God, this picture of God as this father who who waits for the son. Here's what A.W. Tozer says. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I want you to think about that for a moment. That what comes into your mind when you first think about God, whatever that is, that is the most important thing about you. That means that if we were to sit down and just have a little conversation and you were just to tell me your immediate thought when you think about God and you were to express that to me, I could tell you where your life is headed because that's the most important thing about you. I could tell you where your relationship with God was headed because of what you said about how you see God. It's the most important thing about you. So there's a question. There's a question in the Gospels. There's a question that Jesus comes to bring to us in this work that he does. We, throughout the, uh, his teaching, his life, his death and resurrection, it's a very simple and basic question. You know what it is? Who's the Father? Who's the Father? I love this phrase that I heard uh, this fall that, the question was, is God, is God the one who's up in heaven just chewing an acid trying to get through the day because he's so mad at you? <laughs> or is God the Father who shares with his son the freedom to walk away and who waits on the porch hoping praying, longing to see that son again. It's God the Father who watches the horizon, hoping that the next figure he sees is that son or that daughter coming home. It's God the Father who, when he sees the son, leaps off the porch and runs to embrace him. And doesn't even give the son the time to explain his behavior. (laughs) Instead, he turns and says, come on. There's a party to be had. Because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. It's God the father who in patience goes out to his older son. And says, son, all that I have is yours. All that I have is yours. And the love that I have for your brother and the celebration that I have for his return is the same love and joy that I have in you because I love you both the same. Who is the father? You have to answer that question. Who is the father? Who is the father? Jesus came to to take the blinders off to, to help us see the full picture 
in all its beauty and all its glory and to say, this is who the Father is. The one who loves, the one who embraces, the one who forgives, the one who sets free, the one who picks us up and dusts us off and allows us to live again. Jesus says this, this is who the Father is. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your life. And as we, as a community of faith, prepare to celebrate again your birth, we pause to remember how our lives and our world now has the chance to be different because of you and because of what, have you, because of what you have done for all of us. Thank you, Lord, for taking off the blinders and showing us a picture of the Father that is more beautiful and magnificent than we could ever have imagined. I pray, Lord, that in this season of busyness and sometimes stress, that you would enable us to receive fully grace, to experience the holiness of these days, and to be people who are willing to help others take the blinders off. To see you for who you really are. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.